Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the latest and sleaziest episode of this season of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This is your secret knock on the speakeasy door of a back alley in Hollywood, the movie capital of the world, where you'll find palm trees, swimming pools, and more movie stars than you can fit into your average juke joint. But Hollywood isn't always what you see in the movies. It's a place of sunlight and shadows, murder and mythology, and has been home to cranks, kooks, lunatics, and murderers since before the town officially went dry. In season five, we walk the dark streets of Los Angeles, the city of angels, and dig into the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of Hollywood, that glamorous bit of LA that's not so much a place these days, but an illusion that dates back to the days before the stock market crashed. Each episode of the new season, which started with episode 70, which you better start with if you know what's good for you, will reveal another sordid Hollywood tale of crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. And these episodes may not be suitable for all listeners, so listen at your own peril. You've been warned. So take the restaurant booth in the back corner with your back to the wall and your eyes on every door and get ready for a new episode of American Hauntings that's coming to you with a bullet. Hollywood was home to movie stars in the first decades of the 20th century, which came with their share of scandals, drug overdoses, and sexcapades. But in 1920, Prohibition arrived and created a whole new set of problems for Los Angeles. Like pretty much everywhere else in the country, the demand for illegal liquor was high in LA, and there were dozens of bootleggers who were happy to bribe the cops to get the kegs and bottles in the right hands. Perhaps the most famous local hotspot for booze was Culver City, known as the Heart of Screenland. It was home to MGM, Hal Roach, and a number of other studios, and its Main Street, Washington Boulevard, played host to dozens of speakeasies, gambling parlors, and gin joints. The town's open reputation also attracted gambling and prostitution rackets, and soon added a racetrack, a boxing arena, and a dog racing track to its list of dubious attractions. All of them served as magnets for local gangsters. In addition, the Culver City Police Department was well known for looking the other way, losing evidence, and bungling their investigations. 
as long as cash landed in the right pockets, that is. Crime operated there pretty much undisturbed. Of course, Culver City was not the only place to find booze, gamblings, and girls. The rest of Southern California had a thirst for illegal liquor and vice, too. And Hollywood could always be counted on for more than its share of corruption and scandal. The film industry, which was the largest business in the area by the 1920s, provided more than enough money for both excess and debauchery. A series of scandals rocked Hollywood in the early 1920s, all of which will be subjects of upcoming episodes, and they gave America a front row seat to the excesses of the Hollywood movie colony and its shining stars. There was no doubt about it, with orgies, drugs, illegal hooch, scandals, and sex, Hollywood had officially made it to the big time. Well, one of the best places to find gambling in Los Angeles was actually not in Los Angeles, but actually about three miles off the coast. The first gambling ship arrived in 1928 to entertain and lighten the pockets of residents and visitors who were looking for action. The various retrofitted barges that anchored off the coast for the next decade became a lucrative venture. Flaunting legal jurisdictions, they operated openly until the late 1930s when a series of raids finally put them out of business. With the kind of newspaper headlines and scandal sheet stories that were pouring out of Southern California, it was a natural progression to see gangsters and crime bosses across the country heading to L.A. to set up shop. They handled booze, gambling, numbers rackets, and prostitution, and in return for a cut of the profits, local cops were expected to keep any eastern concerns from muscling in on their territory. When Al Capone himself came calling in 1927, he was met by a couple of detectives who made it clear that the Chicago mob boss was not welcome in L.A. After this little visit, Capone headed back to the Windy City, ending his vacation in sunny California. The cops in Los Angeles weren't just keeping Eastern gangsters from setting up operations in the area, though. Chief of Police Ed Two-Gun Davis and his cronies in City Hall were also making sure that the graft continued to flow into the pockets of the cops and the politicians who would take it. Their operations culminated in 1938 with the car bombing of an ex-LAPD private investigator named Harry Raymond. He was in the process of exposing the widespread corruption in the police department and uncovered a lot of information that no one wanted publicized. The bombing was traced back to the LAPD's intelligence squad, and the public outrage that followed managed to oust Mayor Frank Shaw, while Chief Davis, along with 23 police officers, were forced into resigning. L.A. was also the scene of several sensational crimes of the late 1920s, and they would be the first of many to come. There were kidnappings and murders, and kidnappings that turned into murders, and sensational shootouts like the 1929 gun battle between Jack Hawkins and Zeke Hayes and the L.A. Sheriff's Department inside the county courthouse. The two men had long records, which included the alleged torture death of a cop. When they were discovered in Southern California, they were set up and the L.A. sheriffs got the revenge. Los Angeles continued to expand in the 1930s. Newcomers arrived on a daily basis. There were the Okies looking for work, grifters looking for a quick buck, and of course, dream seekers who came to California looking for their big break. Hollywood continued to serve as a beacon for would-be starlets and dreamers, but death and scandal sometimes shadowed even the brightest aspects of Tinseltown. The turning point for L.A. crime came in 1938, after private investigator Harry Raymond was killed while looking into reports of police corruption. And while heat was undeniably turned up on the rackets for a time, it didn't bring an end to crime and corruption in the city. 
As World War II loomed closer, reports of overseas fighting began to replace newspaper headlines about sensational crime, but that wouldn't last long. Los Angeles and Hollywood changed after World War II. By this time, the star system and the stranglehold the studios held on their stars' lives began to collapse. The big studios began to see increased competition and they began to lose much of their earlier influence. In LA, the end of the war saw the rise of Las Vegas, which emptied many of the night spots of their big name talent. Some of the larger venues closed and smaller hip joints became popular. The smaller clubs prospered and were joined by a few larger places like Ciro's, Macambo, and the Crescendo on Sunset Boulevard. There were also the African-American clubs on Central Avenue, and white hipsters and celebrities who went there looking for authentic jazz were never disappointed. In unincorporated parts of Los Angeles County, strip clubs, burlesque theaters, and gambling parlors also got in on the action, filling the void created by Las Vegas. In the late 1940s, the Monterey Club, the Normandy, the Horseshoe, and several other lesser spots provided a spot where illicit activity was allowed to operate in obscurity. There were also beachfront communities like Long Beach, Venice, and Santa Monica that hosted, quote, games of chance, which were mostly bingo and keno, but that was just another form of gambling. Palm Springs, California also catered to both Hollywood stars and L.A. gangsters. The Dunes, a private gambling club run by a former Detroit mobster, was one of the swankiest places in town. Up in the mountains, film star Noah Beery ran a guest resort that offered illegal booze in an isolated location that kept out the authorities. In nearby counties, those who went looking could find cockfights, dog racing, nudist colonies, and just about any other sort of vice imaginable. Small beach communities up and down the coast were favorite places for rendezvous for those trying to stay away from cops and photographers. Even though LA lost a lot of its crime after the war, the sex trade continued to operate uninhibited. Prostitution in Los Angeles dated back to the city's very beginning, but it didn't become an organized vice until just after the turn of the 20th century. In 1906, members of the Good Government League and Deputy District Attorney Thomas Woolwine attacked LA Mayor Arthur C. Harper for conspiring with the chief of police and a notorious gangster to control prostitution in the city. Woolwine's investigation revealed that Mayor Harper, who, as it turned out, was well acquainted with brothels, had repeatedly sold phony stocks to madams as a method of hiding monthly payments, bribes, and extortion fees. The news caused a sensation at the time, yet it failed to cause many problems within the police department. After all, it was no secret that the LAPD had helped set up the city's first red light district a few years earlier, designed to cater to visiting investors, politicians, and businessmen. Hollywood's connections to prostitution in Southern California began only a few short years after the establishment of the movie colony. One of the rumors from those days claimed there was a West Hollywood brothel that had prostitutes who were made up or even given plastic surgery to make them resemble famous movie actresses. James Elroy's book, L.A. Confidential, and the movie it was based on it, added veracity to the story since Elroy is famous for weaving real stories from the city's lurid past into his novels. The book contains a subplot about an exclusive call girl service that catered to men who wanted to bed girls who looked like Rita Hayworth, Ava Gardner, Veronica Lake, and others. There's more fact to that story than fiction. But high-priced call girls and fancy bordellos have always been a part of Hollywood history. One of the first Hollywood madams was Pearl Morton, who was a notorious purveyor of girls in the movie colony. 
During the 1920s and 1930s, Lee Francis was the city's premier madam, and she boasted an influential clientele of important businessmen and, of course, important people in the movie business. Francis had at least four bordellos under her management, and she always kept a fresh supply of chilled imported champagne and Russian caviar at every house. That way, whenever the vice squad showed up for one of their scheduled, quote, raids, and there was no one in the house to arrest, she could make sure the diligent lawmen were served some refined refreshments. Lee's brothels each had its own swimming pool, tennis court, full-service restaurant, fully stocked bar, and of course, dozens of girls to choose from. The brothels were not only used for sexual liaisons, but also provided men with a place to conduct business meetings, play cards, or even go for an afternoon swim when they were supposed to be at the office and couldn't go home. Movie stars were common at the houses because Francis maintained a strict code of secrecy, which allowed them to come and go as they please with no worries about photographers or fans. After Lee Francis was jailed for 30 days on a morals charge, Anne Forrester, who was known by the nickname Black Widow, oh man, stepped in and became Hollywood's top madam in the late 1930s. It was said that Forrester's operations grossed more than $5,000 every week. By 1940, though, Anne had been jailed for her illegal activities. This occurred despite Mayor Fletcher Bowen's request that she be given a light sentence because, quote, her information was of great value in determining the identity of those police department members whose honesty was questionable. The Black Widow's protege, Brenda Allen, took over operations in the 1940s. Allen became known as Hollywood's most famous madam. Using a series of elaborate houses located above the Sunset Strip, Brenda catered to the city's wealthiest clients, including many notable Hollywood personalities. Allen was reported to gross more than $9,000 a day, one-third of which was earmarked for bribes, physicians, and attorney fees, and bail bondsmen. Brenda maintained secret client files in case she ever got into legal difficulties and had to call on one of her clients for help. As an added insurance policy, she had an ongoing affair with LAPD Sergeant Elmer Jackson of the Vice Squad. Allen's luck ended in 1948 after telephone tapes captured a revealing conversation between her and Jackson. Her arrest caused a scandal, not for the list of Hollywood clients that were in her black book, but because it became clear that her operation depended on the cooperation of several corrupt vice cops, including Jackson. When her bordellos were shut down, the stink from the whole mess resulted in the retirement of police chief Clements B. Horrell. But the fall of Brenda Allen was certainly not the end of brothels in Hollywood. In the 1950s, a protege of Allen named Barry Benson began operating from a lavish 13-room Moorish castle on Schuyler Road, north of the Sunset Strip. Benson's business entered under the regime of hard-nosed police chief William H. Parker, the first honest cop LAPD had seen in years. Tinseltown brothels were far from a thing of the past, and into the 1970s, 1980s, and beyond, they operated under the organization of Elizabeth Adams, who was known as Madam Alex, and Heidi Fleiss, whose eventual arrest revealed that she really did earn the nickname Madam to the Stars. Among the celebrities in her black book were film executives like Robert Evans, actors like Charlie Sheen, and rock stars like Mick Jagger and Billy Idol. In January 1997, she was convicted and spent the next two years in prison.
But what would Hollywood be without the mob, whether on screen or off? We don't always hear a lot about the effect that organized crime had on the movie industry, but it was always there. Gangsters influenced the daily operations of the movie studios, rubbing shoulders with celebrities by night and terrorizing studio executives during the day. While actors and actresses were facing the studio system and the iron wills of their bosses, gangsters were intimidating the movie moguls into lucrative compliance. Organized crime's infiltration of the film business began when movies were still silent and existed through Hollywood's golden age, which ended in the 1950s. This was when most of the industry's power was held by a handful of major studios and their tight-fisted bosses. Thanks to this, the mob had well-defined targets to threaten and shake down, and of course, they regularly did so. By the 1920s, Hollywood was no longer just a second thought for the dominant East Coast movie business. The major studios were now all located in LA and were thriving during the years of prohibition when organized crime was growing in leaps and bounds across the country. The swanky movie colony was a rewarding marketplace for bootleg liquor and mob syndicates were making a fortune peddling narcotics to the film crowd. With the repeal of Prohibition in the 1930s, organized crime in New York and Chicago began looking for new ways to bleed cash from the movie industry. As they worked to control the movie business, they sought out contacts in the industry, and one of the most famous was an actor named George Raft. Born in 1895, the future movie star grew up in Manhattan's infamous Hell's Kitchen, where one of his childhood pals was Oni Madden, who grew up to be one of New York's most vicious bootleggers and killers. Madden's rackets made him a feared and respected member of the New York underworld, and his old friend George hung around with gangsters for years. When Madden decided to distance himself from a brewing gang war in New York, he traveled to California in 1930 and brought George along. Raft had made an earlier trip to L.A. under mob orders to chaperone nightclub hostess Texas Guinan, who was about to make a Hollywood film. This time, Raft was ordered to stay in Hollywood. Madden wanted to protect his friend from underworld rivals in Manhattan, and he also believed that his good-looking pal had screen star potential. In films like Quick Millions and Scarface, Raft quickly established his movie persona as a slick, well-dressed gangster. It was a part he knew well. In addition, movie studio bosses appreciated a star with real-life mob affiliations playing a gangster. That way, organized crime would be tolerant of his celluloid representations and the studios wouldn't be held responsible. Although Raft had been married to Grace Mulrooney since 1923, the marriage fell apart. Being a staunch Catholic, though, Raft refused to divorce her. However, he had no qualms about carrying on torrid affairs with Hollywood starlets. With his almost single status and his agility on the dance floor, the handsome and well-mannered actor was in constant demand on the Hollywood social scene. Film people were always intrigued by his connections to the underworld, and they loved the idea of brushing up against real danger. Raft's array of escorts over the years included Carol Lombard, Lucille Ball, Betty Grable, Norma Shearer, and others. However, his greatest love was socialite and fledgling actress Virginia Pine, with whom he unofficially shared a house in the late 1930s. Raft circulated on the Hollywood scene with, among other underworld characters, Pasquale Pat DeCiccio, who was associated with New York kingpin Charles Lucky Luciano. DeCiccio was sent to L.A. posing as a manager and talent agent, but was in reality a frontman for the Rackets. From 1932 to 1934, he was married to movie actress Thelma Todd, who died mysteriously in 1935. Her death was reportedly ordered by Luciano when she turned down his offer to turn her beachside restaurant into a gambling club. 
Later, DeCicco turned to film producing, which, you know, some would say is barely a step above gangster, but let's move on. In time, Raff's bright light began to grow dim, and at the request of the mob, he became involved as a frontman and greeter in casinos in Cuba and Las Vegas, and later at the Colony Club in London. At each casino, he talked up the high rollers, danced with their women, and signed autographs for those who were still impressed by the fading star. George Raff died in 1980, still remembered as the big screen gangster that he almost was in real life. But Raft wasn't the only big time celebrity with gangster connections. It's not just a rumor that Frank Sinatra enthusiastically counted a number of underworld figures as his close friends. In the 1930s, Sinatra was a struggling newcomer and Willie Moretti, a northern New Jersey racketeer who had an associate related to Sinatra's first wife, helped the singer get important bookings. The two men became friends and stayed in touch until Moretti's murder in 1951. During the 1940s, Joseph Fischetti, a Chicago gangster, also became friends with Sinatra, and the two men met occasionally in New York and Miami. In early 1947, Sinatra accompanied Fischetti and his brother to Cuba, where they got together with deported gangster Lucky Luciano. It was Fischetti who helped Sinatra gain bookings in Chicago and Miami in the early 1950s, when Sinatra's career was experiencing a temporary downturn. In the late 1950s, Sinatra became friends with Sam Giancana, who was then head of the Chicago outfit. In 1962, when Giancana was operating a gambling front called the Villa Venice Supper Club in Wheeling, Illinois, Sinatra arranged for himself, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Eddie Fisher to perform at the venue. Meanwhile, Sinatra was given a partnership in the Cal Neva Lodge on Lake Tahoe, a casino club where he'd previously appeared. During a 1963 investigation, the Nevada State Gaming Commission revoked Sinatra's gaming license based on his unsavory associations with gangsters. Gene Harlow was another Hollywood figure who mingled with the underworld. In the early 1930s, Jean was starting her career at MGM Studios. She went on a promotional tour, and while in New York, her stepfather, Marino Bello, introduced her to a longtime pal named Abner Longies Wilman, who, along with Willie Moretti, ran the rackets in northern New Jersey. Bello, who was not exactly an outstanding parental figure, pushed for a relationship between Gene and Zwillman, hoping to be rewarded for his efforts. Well, Harlow and the love-struck gangster became intimate, and for a time, he sent monthly checks to help support her relatives and to maintain a lavish Hollywood lifestyle. Their relationship only ended when Harlow wed producer Paul Byrne in 1932, another tragic story for a later episode. But if there was any gangster better known to the readers of LA newspapers than Mickey Cohen, I don't know who it would be. Cohen had the dubious distinction of escaping more attempts on his life than perhaps any other mobster in American crime history. Cohen became a sort of cult hero in LA during the 1940s and 50s. Cohen started out as a syndicate underling, but began building his own empire in the middle 1940s after the man he was supposed to be guarding was murdered on orders from top gangsters. Mickey soon had gambling, prostitution, and extortion rackets up and running, making enemies of other mobsters like Jack Dragna, who believed he should have been the top man in LA, not Mickey Cohen. Dragna was an old school mafioso. He had moved into L.A. at the start of Prohibition and had pushed out the loose outfits of organized crime that already existed there. He began a bloodbath that resulted in numerous deaths, including 30 men who were gunned down along Darwin Avenue in 1935 alone. This stretch of roadway, not surprisingly, became known as Shotgun Alley. 
Dragna was an immigrant from Sicily and the president of the Italian Protection League. He was the unofficial mayor of the Italian neighborhood in LA, dispensing wisdom, settling family disputes, and enforcing his own set of rules. The godfather, so to speak. He muscled in on bootleg liquor market and gained the leadership of the first Italian crime family in Los Angeles. He and his gunmen managed to gain national prominence for the LA mob. But Dragna's power was compromised with the arrival of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel in the 1930s. Siegel dismissed Dragna's operation as the, quote, Mickey Mouse Mafia and soon took over control of the region. Siegel arrived with the blessings of Meyer Lansky in New York, and Dragna understood that if he wanted to stay in business at all, he was going to have to turn over his bookmaking operations, casino interests, racetrack betting, and gambling ships to Siegel. In this way, Bugsy had control of the LA Rackets by 1937. Dragna remained the head of the LA family, continued to settle disputes, arrange hits, and oversee drug trafficking throughout the region, but that was about all. Mickey Cohen never paid any respect to Dragna, even when he had to occasionally work with him under Siegel's orders. The animosity between the two men was mutual. Dragna refused to let Jews into his outfit, just as his mafia predecessors had done in the past, and Cohen hated him for it. He also imitated the disdain that Siegel had for Dragna, making the situation worse. After Siegel was taken out, Dragna expected to inherit the operation that had been left behind, but Cohen had other plans. Soon, the two mob operations were at war. Fortunately for Cohen, Dragna's attempts on his life were as sloppy as his organization had been when Bugsy Siegel had taken it over. Mickey managed to cheat death at least five times. Twice, Dragna's hitmen tried dynamiting Cohen's home, once with a homemade torpedo and once with straight dynamite. The torpedo never exploded and the dynamite went off, but had been placed directly under a concrete floor, causing the explosion to travel downward and sideways instead of up. The blast shattered windows throughout the neighborhood, but left Mickey, his wife, his dog, and the family maid unharmed. What upset Mickey the most was that more than $4,300 suits had been shredded to rags in the explosion. Neighbors jokingly dubbed him public nuisance number one after the bomb blast. On another occasion, a Dragna gunman let loose with both barrels of a shotgun one night as Cohen was driving home. His Cadillac was peppered with holes, but incredibly, not a single slug touched him. Another attack occurred in front of Sherry's restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. Mickey was there drinking and enjoying the entertainment until he left the club at about 4 a.m. As he and his men walked out, a storm of gunfire erupted from across the street. It was a fluke that Mickey hadn't been killed. Just before the gunman opened fire, Mickey noticed a scratch on his shiny new Cadillac and bent down to examine it more closely. A bullet flew right past his head and killed Nettie Herbert, one of Cohen's closest friends. After that, Mickey's attorney, Sam Rummel, made sure that someone anonymously leaked Mickey's whereabouts to the LAPD. They shadowed him, unknowingly given Cohen a ring of official bodyguards, but Dragna refused to back down and ordered hits on Cohen's lieutenants. Two of his men disappeared a short time later. Their bodies were never found. Then the next week, two assassins ambushed attorney Sam Rummel outside his home, and he was shot dead. Well, Mickey finally got the message and began making overtures of reconciliation. However, he never offered to relinquish any of his territories or give any money to Dragna. This infuriated the Italian even more. A year after Rummel's death, Dragna sent Sam Bruno, a veteran hitman, to wait outside of Cohen's house with a high-powered rifle. Cohen arrived home at just after 4 a.m. and Bruno opened fire at him. He blazed away at Cohen and left after three minutes, believing the mobster finally had to be dead. 
Somehow though, once again, Mickey emerged without a scratch. Dragna never did get Cohen. Even after Mickey was convicted on a tax rap and sentenced to serve five years in prison, a major corruption probe cost Dragna the police protection that he needed to take over his rival's operations. Mickey Cohen became a nationally known mob figure and was probably the most quoted gangster of his day. In 1950, he appeared before the Kefauver Committee's hearings on organized crime. He was asked to explain why a Hollywood banker had given him a $35,000 loan without any sort of collateral. Cohen answered, hey, I guess he likes me. Cohen was twice convicted on tax violations, serving four years on a five-year sentence on one occasion and 10 years of a 15-year term on another. When he was released from prison in 1972, he declared his intention to go straight. Well, it wasn't really a matter of choice by that time. He was partially paralyzed as a result of a head injury he had received at the hands of another convict in Atlanta in 1963. Mickey Cohen died of natural causes, of course, in 1976. I mentioned him in passing in the last segment, but there's no way that we weren't coming back to the man who was undoubtedly Hollywood's favorite gangster, Ben Bugsy Siegel. Ben grew up on New York's Lower East Side and by the age of 14 was already running his own criminal gang. He formed an early alliance with a youth named Meyer Lansky and by 1920, they'd formed a gang that specialized in bootleg liquor, gambling, and auto theft. On occasion, Siegel and Lansky hijacked liquor shipments from other operations before realizing there was more money to be made by hiring out their gang as protection for the other outfits. Soon they were connected to rising Italian mobsters like Charles Luciano, Frank Costello, Joe Adonis, Albert Anastasia, and others. After Luciano and Lansky created a national crime syndicate, they often assigned Spiegel to carry out murders that were used to gain control of various operations. He relished the blood and was so enthused by it that he was dubbed Bugsy, meaning that he was a psychopath even to other gangsters, although he was never called that nickname to his face. In the 1930s, Siegel was sent to California to run the syndicate's West Coast operations, including the lucrative racing wire service for bookmakers. When he arrived, vice operations were already being run by Jack Dragna. He dismissed the so-called Mickey Mouse Mafia and was soon running all of L.A. It was in Hollywood where Bugsy was the happiest. The handsome gangster loved the Hollywood nightlife and hanging out with movie stars who undoubtedly enjoyed slumming it with a real-life gangster. Siegel was suave and entertaining and became friends with Hollywood celebrities like Gene Harlow, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, and especially George Raft. He and Raft began hanging out on a regular basis. They were seen everywhere together, from the Santa Anita racetrack during the day to the Tinseltown party circuit at night. The two good-looking men attracted beautiful starlets, and Siegel easily found girls who were thrilled to be dating a real-life mobster. One of Siegel's most frequent girlfriends was actress Wendy Berry, who hoped to someday marry the volatile and elusive gangster. Another of his steady dates was Marie the Body McDonald, a voluptuous movie personality who made several forgettable films in the 1940s. However, Siegel was smitten with Virginia Hill, a crime syndicate bag woman. This hard dame's career included dancing in a carnival and being a bed partner to various underworld characters like Frank Costello, 
Joe Adonis and Frank Nitti. Siegel probably met Virginia for the first time in New York, but their relationship heated up when she came to Hollywood in 1939, hoping to make it in pictures. Or at least that's what she told Bugsy. She'd actually been sent to California by the New York Syndicate with orders to keep an eye on the erratic Siegel. Virginia attended all the best Hollywood parties, was a fixture on the nightclub scene, and was usually seen in the company of Siegel and his buddy George Raft. During World War II, Siegel began to have dreams that would take him away from Hollywood and into the Nevada desert, where he planned to turn a sleepy watering hole called Las Vegas into a legal gambling paradise. With Siegel already in California, it was not hard for him to convince syndicate pal Meyer Lansky of the potential in Las Vegas. Gambling had always been a huge moneymaker for the mob, and in Nevada, legalized gambling had a much lower overhead than anywhere else. There were no politicians or police officers who had to be paid off so that the gambling could take place. Legal gambling was also the perfect arrangement for laundering money. The land that would later be the site of Siegel's iconic Flamingo Casino was owned in 1944 by Billy Wilkerson, the owner of the Hollywood Reporter and several nightclubs on the Sunset Strip. Wilkerson had hired George Vernon Russell to design a hotel that was more in the European style than the so-called sawdust joints that were already located on Fremont Street. Russell planned a hotel with luxurious rooms, a spa, showroom, golf course, nightclub, and upscale restaurants. Due to high wartime material costs, though, Wilkerson began to run into financial problems almost at once, running almost $400,000 short. He began looking for new financing, which is where the mob would conveniently step in. In late 1945, Bugsy learned that Wilkerson had run out of money for his grand hotel and casino and leaned on him until he agreed to accept new partners. With Lansky's blessing, Bugsy talked the syndicate in investing $2 million in the new property. Wilkerson was allowed to keep a nominal interest in the casino and on the surface would retain operational control. But, you know, everyone knew it was actually Bugsy Siegel who was running the show. Siegel took over the final phases of construction and convinced more of his mob associates to invest in the project. The problem was that Siegel had no experience in construction or design, and the cost quickly spiraled out of control. Things were made worse by price gouging from construction firms and suppliers, as well as companies who delivered by day, stole their materials back at night, and then resold them again to Siegel the next day. Now, you might wonder what construction guys would have the balls to cheat the mob, but Turns out it's easy. Bugsy was in on the scam. It allowed him to skim part of the construction money into his own accounts. The project ran into delay after delay, falling far behind schedule. Siegel finally opened the Pink Flamingo Hotel and Casino on December 26, 1946, at a cost of $6 million, tripled the budget he'd promised the syndicate. He named the resort after Virginia Hill, who loved to gamble and whose nickname was Flamingo, which Siegel had dubbed her due to her long, skinny legs. Well, and she'd earned it. She'd been helping Bugsy skim money from the construction project and made frequent trips to deposit money for the bombster in Swiss banks. She put up with a lot from him, too. Virginia may have been Siegel's favorite mistress, but she wasn't the only one. At one brief time after the casino opened, Siegel had four of his favorite girlfriends lodged in separate hotel suites at the same time. Virginia Hill, Countess Dorothy DeFrasso, and actresses Marie McDonald and good old Wendy Berry, who frequently announced her engagement to Bugsy and never gave up hoping. 
Whenever she saw Wendy in the hotel, Virginia Hill would go wild and once punched the actress so hard in the face that she nearly dislocated her jaw. Unfortunately for Siegel, women trouble soon became the least of his worries. The syndicate began getting restless when a year after the official groundbreaking, the resort had produced no revenue and it had become a drain on the resources of the investors. Then charges were made at a mob meeting in Cuba that either Siegel or Hill was skimming the resort's building budget, an accusation that seemed to be substantiated when Hill turned out to have a $2.5 million bank account in Switzerland. Charles Luciano and the other mob leaders in Havana asked Meyer Lansky what to do. Distressed because of his longtime ties to Siegel, who he loved like a brother, Lansky nevertheless agreed that if someone was stealing, he had to go. However, he was willing to give Siegel a chance to come clean and make good on the investments. He persuaded the others to wait for the Flamingo Casino opening, and if it was successful, then Siegel would have a second chance. Luciano agreed to the plan and the others followed along with him. The splashy opening with a roster of stars present that included George Raff, Georgie Jessel, Rosemarie, Jimmy Durante, Clark Gable, Lana Turner, Cesar Romero, Joan Crawford, and others was a disaster. Even these big names didn't seem to be able to lure the customers and gamblers to the Nevada desert. Lansky managed to persuade the other mob chiefs to give Siegel one more reprieve and allow the Flamingo a little more time. In January 1947, the resort was closed until the hotel could be finished, and Bugsy knew he was in big trouble if things didn't turn around. Well, they did, of course, but by then, that was too late. The Flamingo reopened in March 1947, and despite the hotel not being complete, things began to change. Crowds flocked to the new resort, and by May, the place was reporting a $250,000 profit. Lansky could finally show the others that Siegel had been right about Las Vegas all along, but that wasn't enough to save Bugsy's life. On June 20th, Siegel was sitting in the living room of Virginia Hill's Beverly Hills home. She was away in Europe at the time. He was reading a newspaper when two steel-jacketed slugs tore through the front window. One of them shattered the bridge of his nose and exited through his left eye, while the other entered his right cheek and blew out the back of his neck. Authorities later found his right eye on the dining room floor more than 15 feet from the body. Bugsy was dead before he hit the floor. Siegel likely knew he was a marked man by the time he died, and well, pretty much so did everyone else. Only five people, all members of Siegel's family, attended his funeral. His friend Meyer Lansky was nowhere to be found, and Virginia Hill was conveniently out of the country. His movie star pal George Raft was sick at home with, you know, asthma. All of Hollywood stayed away, and their favorite gangster went to the grave at the age of only 41. But have we really seen the last of Bugsy Siegel? Virginia Hill's former home, which is a private residence on Linden Drive in Beverly Hills, is reportedly still haunted by the panic presence of Ben Siegel as he scrambles for cover, attempting to hide from the bullets that killed him. Actions he never got to complete in life. His stark fear as he spotted his killer and knew the game was up has left an indelible impression on the house. According to reports, witnesses have been startled for years by the apparition of a man running and ducking across the living room, only to disappear as suddenly as he came. A psychic who was brought into the house to investigate claimed that the image was the residual presence of Bugsy Siegel, imprinted on the place in his last desperate moments before death. As the years have passed, Bugsy's ghostly energy here may have faded somewhat, but it's been suggested that his spirit still may not rest in peace. After Bugsy's murder, the mob continued to support the Flamingo Hotel and eventually saw it grow and prosper. 
They poured millions of dollars into Las Vegas and it became the gambling mecca that Siegel envisioned in the early 1940s. Siegel had pioneered the luxury casino in Vegas and the popular performers that began playing at various resorts in town did much to make the city and gambling appear respectable. Meyer Lansky took over the running of the Flamingo and with a year had made a profit of $4 million. He also had shares in the Sands Hotel along with singer Frank Sinatra, who with the Rat Pack put Vegas on the map. Siegel left an enduring legacy in the desert and it's said that his spirit still resides at the Flamingo Hotel today, even after the many changes to the place since the days when Siegel was in residence. The 1940s and 50s were the heyday of Las Vegas as a mafia-run enterprise. The casinos were incredibly lucrative, but as time went on, it became more and more difficult to conceal illegal activities. And in the 1970s and 80s, the mob presence in Vegas began to wane. At that point, many of the casinos were sold off to legitimate companies. In 1972, the Hilton Hotel chain acquired the Flamingo. Las Vegas is a place of perpetual progress, and as the city grew, so did the Flamingo. In 1993, the last remnant of the original hotel, which many claim was Bugsy's personal suite, was demolished to make way for a new rose garden. In 1999, the hotel split from the Hilton chain and was taken over by Caesars Entertainment, which still operates the Flamingo today. Even after all these changes, Bugsy simply refuses to leave, spending his time loitering in the hallways and startling young women with his chilling good looks. His phantom has been seen on many occasions, wearing his smoking jacket as he wanders about what he still feels is his hotel. He appears to guests and employees alike, and only when he vanishes do they realize that what they've seen is no longer a living person. His wide smile may put them at ease, but the eeriness of his disappearance terrifies many, including one's custodian, who, after a run-in with Bugsy, immediately quit her job. Bugsy is often encountered in the Rose Garden near a plaque bearing his name, but most unsettling are his frequent appearances in the hotel's presidential suite. Although it was built many years after his death, there are those who say this suite bears a striking resemblance to Bugsy's own private rooms. Guests in the suite have reported a number of strange encounters with his spirit from eerie moving cold spots to items that vanish or move about from place to place. Bugsy's apparition has also been spotted in the bathroom and near the pool table. Those who claim to see him all say he appears in the same way, never distressed or upset, but always seemingly content and happy to be around. Perhaps Bugsy is simply having the last laugh from the other side. As he looks around, he can say, hey, I told you so. Las Vegas turned out exactly the way he always knew that it would. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. 
Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Okay. A super size episode to come back to. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you ready then? Yep. Alrighty. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey man, how you doing? It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. It has. I mean, what's it been? Almost a month since we've recorded our uh, movie episode, our end of the year movie episode. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we took uh, took some time off for the holidays. Yep. And uh, just now some more back. time to recover. Yep. Now we're back. So we'll uh, yeah. we'll have this episode, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll be recording at dead of winter. And then we'll uh, we'll be back on a regular schedule again. So, yeah, and we're recording this one uh, a little unconventionally again. Uh, we're doing a remote episode, which we realize we haven't done since May. <laughs> May um, of of last year. Yeah, because uh, I finally got coronavirus. Yes, I know you did. So. Yeah, and uh, you know I can only speak to my my experience, um, but I, I I consider myself very lucky. I didn't. I would not have realized I had it, but uh, one day I was drinking a Red Bull and I was like, this is odd. I, uh, I, I can't <laughs> yeah. taste this. It doesn't taste like cough medicine. Hey, <laughs> I, I like the sugar-free <laughs> ones, but um, I, was, I was drinking it and it just, it just felt a tingle. And so I went to the refrigerator, I grabbed some sriracha, I put it on my finger and oh, uh, God. realized, okay, again, that's just more tingle. And then um, I was at a friend's house cause I was working from his place and he and his roommate, oh, way well, to go. His, spreading it to he him. And, he and so. his roommate had it back in, back in uh, November, November. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, so I was, I was working from there cause we've been, I've been working out of his place and we'll, we'll work out after work and just so we have some company and accountability, you know, and, sure, um, sure. he yeah. said, can you, can you smell this? And he handed me some apple cider vinegar and I was like, nope, can't smell that either. Oh, man. So I, oh, yeah, man. set up a test for the next day. Um, and then I just started isolating since then and, uh, got a positive result later. Um, so far those have been my only symptoms. And again, I know this has killed a, oh, a lot good. of people. 
people, so I'm not trying to make light of it, but I can only I can only no. speak from my experience. No. And uh, yeah, I'll be quarantining till um, Friday will be my last day, assuming I have to check in every day with the with the health sure. health department and stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. I consider myself super lucky. But um, this is this is how we're recording this episode, so fingers crossed. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. Yeah, yeah. So ah, it'll be fine. So it'll be a little off. I mean, everything's weird. Everything's still a little weird, but getting hope slowly getting less weird. Yes, I think. Yeah. So def- you know, definitely returning a little bit back. At to At least normal. you've you've crossed the uh, you know, the Rubicon here of getting it, so you don't have to worry about it after that. So. Uh, I luckily have never gotten it. But on the other hand, I only talked to like six people ever. So and really, that was pretty much my life before the quarantine. So really, it hasn't changed much. So (laughs) right. Anyway, I've been lucky. I'm just waiting on my vaccine. So yes, it'll be coming. Well, okay. speaking of things upcoming, what else we got going on? Yes, 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 yes. We do have some things. Uh, We uh, you know, the big news Biggest news right now is that tickets are now on sale for the 2021 Haunted America Conference. I talked about that just a little bit in our last week's episode, which was kind of that special bonus thing to kind of whet people's appetite for the rest of the season. But we've revived the event finally after being pandemically postponed for one year, and it's back. We've moved it to a month later than we would normally have the conference. It's now July 23rd and 24th. Uh, of later this year. We just thought, let's give it an extra month. We had the date available, so we just shifted the whole thing. And we thought that way things will settle down a little bit more from the pandemic. We'll have more of a chance for more people to get vaccinated, and things will not be so weird this year. So that was our plan. Um, But um, you can check everything out at ghostconference.net. We hope that you'll you'll come. But please remember, we are essentially combining guests from 20 and 21 into one event. Uh, So we're going to have limited spots this year. I mean, it's not normal in January for us to be have already filled like 200 reservations, but we have. Um, So, you know, we're going to have limited spots, especially for the after hour events. So if you're thinking about coming, you really need to get signed up. And uh, I'll repeat, if you did sign up last year when the event was postponed and you carried your tickets over to this year, we do have you in the books. But if you can send us an email, uh, preferably with your your confirmation from last year, it'll make it a lot easier for us, uh, but we will send you a new confirmation for this year. That's all you have to do. If you're already signed up, you're great. If you already ordered t-shirts last year, you've already got a t-shirt for this year. So um, yeah, anyway, that's that's the only thing you have to do. And um, as I also just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Dead of Winter is coming up on February 6th. Uh, it will be a socially distanced affair this year. Uh, we will have two separate areas, one for the uh, the VIP people who signed up for that very early on, and then we will have the vendor's room open with a rotating number of speakers in the vendor room, and uh, that will be open as well, and we'll be only letting in a uh, limited number of people at a time, uh, but remember, that's free. All you have to do is bring a canned food or a non-perishable donation to the event, and uh, you'll be able to uh, to just walk right on in and enjoy everything that we've got going on that day, at least for a while. We also have after-hour events, too, and uh, this is really getting to be your last chance to sign up for those. 
Uh, there is still a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs that night. Uh, there is a socially distanced bus tour that night of Haunted Alton. Uh, we also have a, a dark room session uh, for a very limited amount of people at the McPike Mansion that night too in the wine cellar. So uh, get signed up for that stuff because it's it's running out fast. And finally, one last thing, big surprise. We have a surprise issue of The Morbid Curious that just came out. Um, we didn't announce it. No one knows that it was coming. Uh, normally, we were going to release those only in October and in the spring. And instead, we decided to put one out as um, uh, for Valentine's Day. Uh, I like to think of it as the same surprise that Bugs Moran's men got when Capone's gang showed up at the warehouse in Chicago. Oh, boy. Except without machine guns. <laughs> so um, it, it's a special issue for Valentine's Day um, and not what you would think. It is not a, an issue filled with romance. It is super grim and it's super violent. Um, and it's dedicated to Valentine's Day with massacres and murders and love gone wrong and all the ghost stories that come with them. So that literally just came out on Friday. We just got them in and we surprised everybody with them. So uh, if you are if you love the first issue, The Morbid Curious, you're going to love this one even more since we kind of know a little bit better of what we're doing. And we'll still be putting out a spring issue, too. So uh, this was just one for fun and a surprise that we put out for Valentine's Day. So anyway, you could find it along with pretty much everything else at AmericanHauntings.net. So there's all the plugs. So I'm done. Be beautiful. <laughs> done with that. I feel like yeah. with, with our listeners, the uh, this issue would still probably make a good Valentine's Day gift for their significant oh, other. Oh, yeah, yeah. For our listeners, it certainly would. <laughs> yeah, so that's awesome. <laughs> It'd be the perfect Valentine's Day gift. Well, I'll be sure to check that out. Uh, since we've had so much downtime, we've had a ton of listener reviews. We've had a ton of new patrons, <laughs> yeah, a ton yeah. of emails. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and just dive into some of my favorite listener reviews from iTunes. So this sure. first one is titled Love It, and it's from uh, Cinnamon says, hi, Kayla here. Just wanted to write and say how much I love this podcast. I'm in this season of Murdered in Our Beds. I also wanted to add that I think you two are great together and I feel like it's what makes a podcast so good, especially when Cody at the end, yes, I listened to the very end, goes on and gives a <laughs> recap at the end and Troy doesn't think anyone listens to that part. Seriously, it makes me laugh every time. You guys are great. Keep it up. This next one's from Kristen, F, or titled Kristen F, and it's from K Fig. It says, I've, I've lost five pounds as I told myself I could only listen to this podcast if I was walking, running, or lifting weights at the gym. I'm late to the game, but I'm totally and completely addicted. Cody's drinking comments make me laugh out loud. Yeah, tell, my, <laughs> tell it to my mom, please. Um, I disagree with Troy's takes on angels and plan to attend this year's, hopefully, conference to tell Troy why. So get yeah, ready for that. It's not going to change my mind, so, but whatever. Yeah, you've, had, you've, had, you've had a num number of people come come at you uh, about the angels yeah, thing I know. too. Still don't care. Uh, so always cracks me up. Uh, this <laughs> you last can have an opinion titled, just because it's yeah, wrong. Of course. It's still your opinion. So no shots fired. <laughs> so this this last one's titled "Love This Show" and it's from Lamb Pants. It says, "Let me say this: I'm not a believer in ghosts, not as they currently are defined and or understood culturally, but I'm an addict of folklore, history, and all things spooky and supernatural. You and your team combine these ingredients beautifully, and I look forward to every new episode. Well done, kudos, and applause all around." They said, "Any plans for a Charleston, South Carolina season?" Not right away, but I guess you never know. So yeah, down who the knows? Road, we might, down the road, we might, it depends on how long we're doing this. So yeah, we might get there. So thank yeah. you again. The iTunes reviews really help. I, bump I our noticed show up that you left out the one that someone mentioned that they thought that the all the stuff at the ending was superfluous. 
I did. I know she left that one out. So that they oh, agreed yeah, with did me. I not mention that? Uh, no, you left that one conveniently out. So, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think sometimes you get different reviews than oh, I do. Yeah, you right. know, it's, uh-huh. it's that yeah. whole yeah. How I that get a specially, all works. Especially catered list from iTunes. I'm sure that's it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's Steve Jobs. Um, anyway, yeah. moving moving on, we got a, we got Apple. a lot to talk about. Tim Apple, Tim <laughs> Cookie. Yeah, um, we have a lot to talk about here. Um, I'm not going to recap everything, but God, I'm no, lay the, please the, don't because I know, man. I, I I like I said, I I was telling Cody before even we went we started recording is that I did not realize how long <laughs> this episode was. Until I was working on this, on my, you know, monologue part. I'm like, oh, my God, this never ends. <laughs> so anyway, um, sorry about that. But I thought maybe, hey, you guys like a uh, supersized uh, episode for our first one back after the holidays. So you you got one, whether you wanted it or not. So anyway, Absolutely. go ahead. I man. think sorry. I think all these things <laughs> tie in together really well, too. So it made sense to keep it in yeah, one we, episode. We needed it. You know, we needed I, I wanted to set a background for, you know, all this because the, the, the episodes that are coming after this, all of them are going to be in some way or another dealing with everything that's in this episode. So I kind of felt like we needed it. So there you go. Right. No, I will trust you. I will trust you. So let's talk a little bit about prohibition. So it creates a whole new set of problems for L.A. in 1920. Uh, the most famous hotspot for illegal booze, you said, was Culver City, the heart of Screenland. Uh, Main Street had dozens of speakeasies, gambling parlors, gen joints, which attracted gambling, prostitution rackets, all that kind of fun stuff. Of course, the gangsters and the cops are in, in cahoots. And uh, Hollywood and the film industry also provided enough money for some for some fun, too. You said, quote, there was no doubt about it with orgies, <laughs> drugs, illegal hooch, scandals and sex. Hollywood had officially made it to the big time. <laughs> it just sounds like a, a fun place, you know, that you see in the movies. Well, it sounds like every other big city in, you know in the 1920s, really. I mean, you know, this was, this is Southern, Southern California, Chicago, you know, I mean, this is what was going on in Chicago and, and New York and, you know, any other big city at the time, I, people wanted to drink and there were always, we talked about this a hundred times before, there was always somebody who wanted to provide it. So there you go. Right, right. And yeah, somebody wanting to provide it, uh, that brings us to some some gangsters here. So he said the gambling ships, they were flaunting the legal jurisdiction. They operated openly until the 30s. A series of raids finally puts them out of business. Yeah, they, they would set them up just offshore. I didn't want to get into all the detail about that, but I'll just give sure. you this because it, so it makes sense. They would set up just like a, a certain distance from shore. That way it was no longer uh, the United States. You know, because technically you're out in, you know, in open waters. So then they would just ferry the passengers back and forth by motorboats out to the gambling ships. And that way people could go out there and drink and gamble. And none of it was illegal because they were out on the open sea. So it was kind of like pirates, (laughs) you know. Right. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You said uh, even Capone was met by detectives in 1927 who made it clear that he was not welcome in L.A. And is is that mostly just because they just didn't want more competition and and things like that? Right. I mean, you know, and that's I know that that Capone went to California and was sent packing. You know how how much of the story is true and how much of the details are fiction. I don't know. But I do know that uh, the Chicago mob did not. Had tried to, they'd already, oh God, it's such a confusing story. Later, they do muscle into 
uh, some of the operations after Prohibition. Um, Frank Nitti, when he was in charge of the outfit in Chicago, they did. And it's not a very it's not an exciting story. Um, <laughs> about them trying to muscle into the movie business and how they ended up getting caught, but they did, uh, thanks to a bunch of checks that were written. And um, so eventually they'd make it out there. But in the 20s, they didn't. They had enough, uh, there was enough corruption in uh, L.A. at the time that they didn't need any help from, you know, gangsters in Chicago. Right, right. Yeah, I guess that doesn't stop them with gangsters from New York, but we'll get to that later <laughs> right, on. Right. So Chief of Police Ed Two Gun Davis makes sure the blood money keeps on flowing. Uh, this all kind of culminated when there was a, an ex-LAPD PI named Harry Raymond about to expose everybody. And so they blew him up. Which would make a great a lot of movie. Backlash. With, right. it, with this story about Harry Raymond, I, I think that I, I need to – there's probably been maybe a book written or something about him, um, and I haven't seen it. I'd, I'd like to. Uh, but, man, wouldn't it make a great movie? Absolutely. You know, and then he gets blown up by cops, you know. Right. <laughs> so it's, you know. Yeah, then they all they all down the operation. Yeah, absolutely. So after World War II, Hollywood changes. Uh, the rise of Vegas stole, steals some big name talent. There's some big venues that end up getting closed. And so uh, other areas kind of started to offer similar vices. So Hollywood starts to change. Let's talk about one one big part of this that we're going to talk about is, is prostitution. So in 1906, Mayor Arthur, Arthur C. Harper tries to control prostitution in the city by selling phony stocks to <laughs> madams to launder money, which I thought was very clever. interesting. Yeah, approach. Yeah. clever. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, there's a rumor that a West Hollywood brothel had made women up to resemble famous movie stars. There might be some truth the, to the book and movie L.A. Confidential, which I've now put on my list. I've seen it pop up a thousand times, but I don't uh, think I've ever actually seen it. You've never seen the movie? I haven't. Oh, my God. I've But I've seen it 25 times. That's one of my absolute favorite Hollywood movies. You've got to see it, man. It's really great. That's All right, a well, that- really great movie. I'm going to have to check it out then. Uh, let's talk about some of the madams. So this is this was one of my favorite parts of this episode. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to spend too much time on all of them, but there's a couple I want to mention. So there's Pearl Morton, one of the first Hollywood madams. Uh, Lee Francis, the city's premier madam during the 20s and 30s, had at least four modelos, always keeps uh, booze around to bribe cops. Said some of these brothels had, you know, swimming pool, tennis court, full service restaurant. Yeah, which restaurant. kind of brings us back to our New Orleans season a little bit. Right. You know, it's a little bit of Storyville here in L.A., you know, yep. except for years later. But, yeah, with the swimming pools and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it sounds sounds great. And then <laughs> Ann Forrester, uh, a.k.a. Black Widow, which I've always, you know, loved that name. I love the term. <laughs> takes reign in the 30s, grossing more than $5,000 a week. At, again, at 74000 or whatever, or $3.8 million a year if, yeah. if that keeps going, uh-huh. which is crazy. But that's nothing compared to uh, Brenda Allen. So the Black Widow's protege takes over in the 40s. Uh, she's reporting up to $9,000 a day. Uh, that's about $60 million, um, which one yeah. third is marked for bribes and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But still, that's it's a hell of a business. So I'm not surprised <laughs> yeah. that, you know, yeah. gangsters and, and people want to get involved in this it seems very lucrative well and she uh, had a she had a lot of connections though to keep things going i mean she had a lot mm-hmm. of people in government that she was paying not in cops of course and you know was having an affair with that elmer jackson that they, who's the head, you know one of the heads of the vice squad at the right. time so which is technically would be investigating her <laughs> you know so right. and, and they worked and you know it's it's interesting she plays a really important part in, uh, well, she's going to, let's just say she'll be back 
there'll be another, there's going to be some more episodes that are coming up where Brenda Allen and her uh, prostitutes and call girls will be another part of our story. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave it at that, but she'll be back. Got it. Okay, so Barry Benson, a protege of Allen's, operates a 13-room Moorish castle north of the Strip in the 50s, 70s, and 80s. It's Elizabeth Adams and uh, Heidi Fleece. Is that how you Flies. Heidi Fleece. Do you remember that? You don't remember that Heidi scandal Fleiss. when it happened a few years well, ago when she went to I, jail? And I actually, I looked her up, and I did remember uh, that was when Charlie Sheen and all that kind of yeah. stuff started <laughs> yeah. to really go crazy. Yeah, um, we're all in her black book. Yeah. Right, and <laughs> yeah. I, was, I started reading about her, and all I wrote down is she's a trip. Like some of the stuff she <laughs> yeah. was she was saying yeah. and very much just, you know, uh, she's like, you know, people aren't going to like you. That's just kind of how how it's going to be. And um, <laughs> yeah. So check out some of her articles and, and videos and things. It's it's really interesting. <laughs> um, now, well, let's the late 90s it. in Hollywood for you there. So, yes, yes. So the I days remember of Johnny seeing, Depp and River Phoenix and, you know, the Viper right. room and all that stuff. So and I remember seeing glimpses of that on, you know, TMZ yeah, and things yeah, like that growing sure. up. But uh just never really clicked until I started digging into it a little bit more. <laughs> um, another huge part of this is the mob. So you said gangsters influenced the daily operations of the movie studios, rubbing shoulders with celebrities by night and terrorizing studio executives during <laughs> the day. Well, see, um, the biggest the biggest way that they did that. And again, I, I did. You know, you can get so deep into some of this stuff and into so many rabbit holes. You you know, you, you can go this thing would could have been even longer. But what was happening is that the mob was controlling all the unions because there were, there are so, and still are, so many unions in Hollywood, you know, from the guys who, you know, the catering guys to, I mean, the Actors Guild, but the catering guys, the light guys, the sound guys, the guys that hook up the wires, everybody's got their own union. And back in the 30s and 40s, that was how the, after the mob, you know, after Prohibition, when they started looking for new ways to get money, they started infiltrating all of the labor unions and, you know, Jimmy Hoffa kind of style, like the Teamsters. And so by doing that, they could tell the studio executives that, you know, unless they did this or paid up this, then this uh, this union would go on strike. And to everyone else who belonged to a union who didn't want to cross a picket line, you literally could shut down an entire studio with one phone call. So that's how they were shaking these guys down. And, uh, and it worked. I mean, they were paying up because they had no choice. Right, right. And so some of these, these mobsters and gangsters, one of them I want to touch on real quick is George Raft, who's going to come up more and more. Um, the movie star ends up, grows up in Hell's Kitchen, had a vicious bootlegger and killer friend named Oni Madden, who yep. t- uh, he took to L.A. And Raff quickly established a, a movie persona as a slick, well-dressed gangster, which it kind of helped the movie studios not piss off the mob, I guess, <laughs> right, since they had one of right. their own. But, and there. he was, and he was a good, he's a, he was a good actor and a good-looking guy. I mean, he really, yeah. he really was a movie star. I mean, Oni Madden was right. He, he had the appeal. Uh, he had potential, and he he was a he was a popular movie star for a long time. And uh, I mean, I get to you know what happened to him later, but still, he you know he had a career that was for real. So it's not like he um, you know was just some you know some stooge they sent out there to you know like in the the Sopranos and Christopher's trying to push his screenplay and stuff. Anybody who saw that, it's not like that. So it's it's it was the real thing. 
Right. And he finally dies in 1980. And I don't know if, if you cut things down for brevity, but it kind of seems like he got pretty lucky, all things considered. Just kind of <laughs> got, got to live his life and yeah, died. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, you know, because, I mean, they took care of him in the end because when his career was over, they just moved him on to put him in their casinos and stuff and just had right. him greeting the high rollers and stuff and let him hang out in casinos until he died. I mean, Really, I mean, he he did everybody a favor, and they took care of him. It was a it was one of those cases where you know the you know the the mobster stepped in and didn't destroy someone's life because because of it. You know, he'd grown up with these guys. You know, right, right. If if only the rest of the cast of characters were so lucky that we're going <laughs> right. to talk about. Right. Uh, this is going to be just a lot of people kind of setting the stage real quick. So uh, you have to talk about Sinatra here. <laughs> right. So the, in the 30s, he's struggling. Uh, William Moretti, a New Jersey racketeer, uh, helped him book some gigs. Moretti's end up being murdered in 1951. Uh, Joseph Fischetti, Chicago gangster, is also a friend. Sam, oh, geez, Giacana. Giancana, yeah. Now, have Giancana. you seen Have you seen The Godfather, the original? Yeah, but, it, okay, yeah, but it's been but, a long so, time. But you remember the guy who's the singer, right, who comes to perform oh, yeah, yeah. at the wedding at the beginning? That guy was based on Sinatra. Because okay. it was, you know, it was the mob who, you know, his, 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 you know, mob connections are what got, kept him working, you know, especially when he had mm-hmm. a kind of a downturn in the early fifties and, uh, they, you know, they kept him working and, uh, he paid them back, you know, by helping them out doing favors for them. So yeah, it's, um, you know, everybody always thought, oh, that's just a rumor, you know, no, it, he really, <laughs> he was, he was actually connected. So, mm. Oh, that's that's interesting. And something I had no clue about that he was given partnership in uh, at a casino out on, on Lake Tahoe and gets his license revoked. Yeah. Well, they started ties. cracking down. I mean, well, how do you think he got the partnership in the first place? Um, right. But right. yeah, when they started cracking down on the mob by this in the 60s um, and 70s, they, you know, he was one of the people who got bounced, you know, out. So. Mm hmm. Moving on to the next person in the story. So Gene Harlow from MGM Studios was uh, pushed by her stepfather into a relationship with Abner Longies Wilman, another New Jersey gangster. But you said we'll get to that tragic story on another Yeah, episode. we will. We'll talk more about Gene Harlow later on. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Mickey Cohen, uh, most well-known gangster to readers of L.A. newspapers. This is a hell of a story. He escapes multiple attempts on his life, uh, <laughs> runs gambling, prostitution, extortion rackets. He ends up pissing off an old school mafioso, Jack Dragna. Uh, so let's, let's talk about this guy. He once had 30 people gunned down. Yeah, let's talk down. about Mickey. Um, because it's Mickey Cohen who, before The Godfather, mm-hmm. um, you know, came, when, was written, before the book was written and they turned it into a movie in the early 70s, uh, Mickey Cohen was kind of, I mean, the same way that Al Capone was in Chicago back in the 20s, he was kind of a local, I don't hate, you hate to say hero, but kind of a cult hero anyway. Right. You know, Capone, Capone had this reputation for, you know, being this, oh, you know, I don't get my hands dirty. You know, I'm setting up soup kitchens for people. I'm trying to help people out. You know, when I, you know, when, when they serve my liquor on Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. But when I do it, it's bootlegging, you know. And the, the, the press loved him. They thought he was funny. And then we get into the 40s and 50s and it's Mickey Cohen in, in L.A. And he's doing the same shtick. You know, he he plays up to the reporters. He's always, you know, he lets them photograph him. They, he gives them interviews and gives them quotes. And everybody thinks he's funny. And, you know, but he, he started out as a nobody working for, and I, I didn't get into this yet because I was going to get into it more in a minute. But 
Um, uh, Benny Siegel is who he originally worked for. When Siegel mm-hmm. came out to L.A., he took over the L.A. mob. And Mickey Cohen worked for him. And when Bugsy Siegel was taken out, um, Dragna thought he was going to get his mob back. And he didn't. Uh, Mickey Cohen took it over instead, which, you know, really pissed him off. So he decided that he was going to um, kill Mickey Cohen uh, because, you know, Mickey had never given him any respect, um, you know. Uh, Siegel had called Dragna's operation the Mickey Mouse Mafia. Right. And, and, and so Cohen just went along with it. You know, I mean, uh, Siegel was his buddy and, you know, he was his boss. And so he just went along with it. And when Siegel was gone, Mickey took over. And then Dragna then spent like the next, I don't know how many years trying to kill Mickey Cohen. <laughs> and he never did, which just like enhanced his reputation. You know what I mean? Right. As this kind of public figure, this, the mob boss who was the, who's the funny public figure. He didn't mean any harm. He's just giving people what they want. They want, you know, gambling and, and, you know, illegal liquor and, and, you know, and prostitutes. I mean, he's not doing anything wrong. I mean, that was his, the way he looked at it, you know, so. Right. It's, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, he, the dynamite, the whole homemade do- torpedo was the one I loved. Yeah, that's amazing. That never exploded. And then the dynamite they put in his house and they <laughs> put it underneath a concrete floor. And so it didn't do, you know, very, it did very little damage because it didn't, it couldn't blow anything up. It just broke windows all over the neighborhood and tore up a bunch of Mickey's suits were in a closet that were right above the bomb. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, not all of them are funny. I mean, like the guy, you know, at Sherry's restaurant when the, his buddy gets killed uh, yeah. by a stray bullet. But that was fluke. That was a fluke. I mean, you know, Mickey would have been killed, but he <laughs> bent over to look at a scratch on his car and a bullet missed him and killed his friend. Yeah, it's a, so, it's a very like. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like a, reminds me like a Mr. Bean sort of thing or something, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. I think this would make. Um, I think Mickey Cohen's story would make a great movie too. Um, they, they, he was in. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, Hollywood. What the hell was the name of that movie? Uh, it had Ryan Gosling in it. Um, crap. It, it's only. It's maybe seven or eight years old, and it was a. It was about the you know the the Vice Squad, but it was like it really made them um, very. Um, I can't even get to, I'm recording something, so I can't even get to my IMDb. But anyway, he, you know, they, um, they used this vice squad that really was super dirty, but in the movie, they made them seem like real heroes. And they were going after Mickey Cohen, who was played by Sean Penn. Oh, do you remember this at Gangster all? Squad? Gangster Squad. That's what it was. Um, which it's a fun movie to watch just for a taste of the period, but it's super inaccurate. Mm. And Mickey Cohen has played, I mean, Sean Penn plays him like he's a, some kind of like psychopath. I mean, like trying to, he's just awful. And that wasn't Cohen's personality at all, which I just thought was a really weird portrayal of him to do, but whatever. I mean, I'm not trying to, to turn this guy into a hero or anything. I just think he's amusing. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, that was the part he was playing. He was, I mean, he was, don't get me wrong. He was a killer. I mean, he was a killer, just like Capone. He was a killer. He was a horrible guy, I'm sure. But yet on the other hand, he had a persona that appealed to people. And I think it would make a good movie, you know? Um, I, I've got a couple of books about Cohen and they're 
entertaining as well. Yeah, I think that that's probably just Sean Penn in general. <laughs> just probably, yeah, probably, yeah. Isn't he like beat people up who took his picture and stuff? Wasn't he like the first guy that did that? I wouldn't be uh, surprised before like Russell Crowe did, you know? So yeah, he's done some crazy things and like interviewing what, yeah. El Chapo or somebody or he's. Oh uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, some yeah, cra- good point. He's done some crazy stuff. Uh, I thought it was yeah. also funny that Dragna talks about you know, uh, the Mickey Mouse Mafia and then years later D- Disney's like its own kind of mafia that you don't want to cross <laughs> yeah, you know right right yeah yeah when it starts you know coming down on movie theaters and anybody who uses their copyrights or anything yeah you're right yeah they're probably gonna blacklist us now that we've talked about that even <laughs> don't want to get on the wrong side of the mouse but uh, let's talk more about uh, Ben Bugsy Siegel. So, grows up in, in New York City, running his own criminal gang by the age of 14, which is, yeah. uh, what a, that's a crazy life. And he, he teams up with yeah. Meyer Lansky, and they, they cause all sorts of trouble, essentially. And I like this. They start robbing other outfits, but then they realize there's more money than being hired to protect those other outfits from people like themselves. Mm-hmm, exactly. She's just very, very clever. Uh, you said apparently Siegel yeah. loves to kill people. Just really, he just gets off on the yeah. whole thing. Right. It's where his nickname came from. Yeah, but you never said it to his face, right? Is that that's what you right, said? Right, right, right. He hated that. So, um, you know, you uh, people who are even you know are familiar with Bugsy Siegel, they 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 think of the they might think of the movie with. Um, that came out just that came out was Bugsy. It was uh, Warren uh, ba- Warren Beatty and uh, Annette Benning were in it. And believe me, that is not <laughs> not even remotely accurate. Um, there's a better there's a better representation of Siegel and all these guys when they were first starting out in uh, one of the later seasons of Boardwalk Empire. Mm. And they when they were wrapping in a lot of the New York stuff and they had Luciano on there and Lansky and they had Benny Siegel and he was a twitchy nutcase, uh, which is more accurate. That was super accurate than anything else that you've seen portrayed. This guy was, um, you know, they could they could trust him to do what he wanted to. And, you know, he was happy in Hollywood because he was getting a lot of attention and hanging out with movie stars and stuff. But this guy was a twitch. I mean, that's why they sent, that's why they sent a Virginia Hill out there to keep an eye on him. Right. Because, I mean, you, you just never knew what he was going to do next. And, you know, he went out to L.A. and just ran roughshod over, you know, Dragna, who was already there, and just literally just took everything over. I mean, he didn't, uh, it wasn't a, hey, let's be partners. It was, um, this is now mine. And anybody who argued uh, ended up dead. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was brutal, really brutal, the way he took over L.A. And I, you know, portrayed it here because we're not going to dig into all that. We were trying to hit the Hollywood side of it. And so on the Hollywood side, he seemed like this, you know, easygoing, fun guy to be around. And I'm sure he was, you know, when that per- side of his personality was in charge. Right. <laughs> it was it was when the other side came out that things got ugly. So, yeah. And you mentioned he had some famous friends, you know, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, especially George Raft, some famous girlfriends, right. Wendy. Yeah, they came from the same place. Yeah. He and George Raft, of course, they became friends. You know, I'm sure they knew each other in New York before he ever even got there. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned some of his famous girlfriends. I will now say uh, Marie McDonald. I have a new crush, which I was not aware of. Um, oh, did you look her yes. up? Did oh, you? I looked all. I looked all these people <laughs> yeah. up. I mean, Wendy Berry. Wendy Berry was cute too. Yeah, they were. They know? were all cute. So, and like you mentioned, most yeah. of these gangster guys, at least the ones that were, 
doing anything, you know, with the studios or whatever are all, you know, just dashing handsome men. And right, then, right. then you see them, you know, with, you know, two bullet holes in their face or whatever later. In, in well, the yeah, right. Yeah, like suit. Bugsy. Yeah. Yeah. When you see Siegel, you know, in his in his suit, you know, going out for a night on the town, you're thinking, wow, that's a, you know, he's a good looking guy. And then, yeah, you see him on the couch with his face blown apart. Right. Not so much. Right. Yeah. And his, his eye across the room and all, no. all that. <laughs> yeah. 15 feet away. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned you wanted to, Siegel wants to turn Las Vegas into a gambling paradise. And let's, you talk about the Flamingo, which I've stayed at the current Flamingo, uh, but I, I had no clue right, the right. history. Um, and no, yeah, well, and it's not, it's not the same building. Right. I mean, they, cause that's Las Vegas. I mean, they tear everything down, start over again, sure. but I mean, it's still the, it's still technically the Flamingo. It's still built where the Flamingo was. Um, and you know, the history is still part of Las Vegas because I mean, that was the first of the real, you know, casino hotels with the spa and the nightclub and the restaurants and everything. Because before that, I mean, gambling was legal in Las Vegas, but as as I mentioned here, when Billy Wilkerson decided to, I mean, he was the owner, he owned the Hollywood Reporter, yeah. he had a bunch of nightclubs. And when he wanted to set this place up, he didn't want it to be like all the other, you know, casinos, if you even want to call them that, that were located on Fremont Street at the time. I mean, they called them sawdust joints because they were essentially just the old saloons that were left over from the old West. Mm -hmm. And they were putting in, you know, gambling machines, slot machines and stuff. And, you know, it was a, it was a very small scale, you know, disorganized kind of thing. And, at this point, the the mob was not even involved, and not in Las Vegas. I mean, the, it was it was Siegel who who brought them to Las Vegas and turned it into what it has become. Right, and so I mean, he had a lot of you know foresight to see what it could become, but then he ends up screwing himself essentially by <laughs> trying to screw over yeah. the mob, which just doesn't. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, those all, you know, it's not like. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, um, we, we think about uh, the mob as being this, you know, all this, you know, honor among their friends and, the, sure. you know, this code, uh, this this mobster code and all this stuff. But, you know, if you, you know, again, watch The Sopranos uh -huh. and then you see, you know, how they're always trying to screw each other over. One family's always trying to screw over the other one. They got to kick back to this guy or that guy. And, you know, the seagull wasn't doing anything that anybody else wasn't doing. It's just he wasn't even bothering to try to hide it very well. Right. I mean, you can't go over budget by $6 million and people wonder what the hell happened to a lot of the money. You know, and again, I, I even said, you know, you might wonder, you know, why the, how these construction guys would have the balls to cheat the mob, but they weren't. It was Bugsy pushing them to do this stuff because then that way he could pretend to buy the stuff again and then just put the money in his own account. Right. So, that's actually my. Which is exactly what he was doing. That's my favorite one, too. Yes. Yeah, so the companies will deliver stuff by day, steal their materials at night and then resell them to Siegel. <laughs> that's just. Oh, that's hilarious to me. Um, I love how he has his girlfriend's lodged in separate hotel suites. Um, that's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess just a really just ballsy guy. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, he just really never thought about the consequences to anything because it didn't really matter. And, and you know, even even when he started to get worried, you know, after the, the they, they had the groundbreaking and they were losing all that money, I think at that point he was starting to get a little nervous. You know, especially when they had the big opening and got all his friends from Hollywood to come out for the opening and nobody cared. You know, I mean, no one cared. And that, I think, was when he really started to worry. But, you know, then it took off. But 
didn't matter by that time. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine too many people get like a third chance to keep their life, <laughs> no, you know? No, the only reason that he got as far as he did is because he and Lansky went back so far and they were good friends. And otherwise, it never would have it never would have gotten that far. He just didn't want to have to, you know, to to, you know, kill off his buddy. But at, at some point, it probably was just it was too much. Right. It just became too much. And they, so he had to. Yeah. So yeah, so Siegel shot dead in Virginia Hills home on June 20th in Beverly Hills. Only five people attended his funeral. That's depressing. Yeah. I know. You know, even, you know, Lansky obviously is not going to come, but I mean, Virginia Hill wasn't there. And even George Raff claimed that he had, you know, was sick with asthma and couldn't come. Right. I mean, really. Come on. But I think he, you know, he knew the score. I mean, he'd been around those guys his whole life. He knew that, you know, that you don't show up for that. You know, you stay out of the way to keep. Well, I mean, you know, he'd been palling around with Siegel for years. I don't think he wanted to get blamed for anything that Bugsy had done, you know. So yeah. he knew to steer clear at that point. I'm going to guess a lot of people had already started steering clear because I can't believe that. Rumor hadn't already traveled about how much trouble he was in because I think he had to have known that he was in trouble at that point. Yeah, yeah, you would imagine, and and so that kind of leads to some of the ghost stories that we that we hear about um, about a, a young man running and ducking across the living room only to disappear suddenly as he as he came from in yeah, Virginia which, Hills. Yeah, which home. is what he would have done, I think, if he had. You know, I mean, that's that's what's weird about that story is he never saw it coming. He was sitting right. there on the couch reading the newspaper. So I think that these stories that have spread about how people have seen this guy running, trying to get to cover is something that he would have done if he'd had a chance. So maybe those were his last regretful moments, you know, that, oh, my God, I should have moved. <laughs> you know, that's all I can think of. Right. You know, that's all I can imagine that where that would come from. But. You know, like a psychic came in and said that it was, you know, residual presence of Bugsy Siegel, which, I mean, makes sense. I mean, I guess, you know, it is where he died. I'm sure he spent a lot of time there when he was alive. Um, so I, it's certainly possible, but, you know, it's not the best story about Bugsy, though. So sure. not about his ghost anyway. Right. It makes me wonder, you know, if I end up dying suddenly, will people see my ghosts like running marathons and lifting weights and eating vegetables and all, <laughs> all the those things, things you wished you'd have done, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I wonder if it works that way. Uh, <laughs> probably not. But yeah, yeah, probably Troy, not. But it's a Troy, nice thought. Troy will be jamming out one more book or something, you know, just like <laughs> yeah. trying to get that I last just one. Just could have finished this thing. So. Uh, just Lansky. eat one more pizza. So, it, oh yeah, actually, yeah, that's that's true. That, <laughs> That'd be both of us, though. <laughs> absolutely, Lansky takes over running the Flamingo within a year, turns a four million dollars in profit. So, uh, man, you know what what could have been, but uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk just a little bit to wrap up with the the Flamingo now. So, you said in the 1970s and 80s, it became uh, much more difficult to conceal illegal activities, and many hotels were sold off to legitimate companies. Uh, that one yeah. was eventually sold to the Hiltons, now owned by Caesars. Um, they're actually kind of connected with this weird land bridge thing, and um, which I, I really love that area. We right. stayed there for CinemaCon, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah but he said Bugsy yeah. still refuses to leave, uh, spending his time loitering the hallways and startling young women with his chilling good looks, even terrifying one custodian who quit her job after having a run-in with his spirit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wish I'd have known about the, those kind of stories while I was there. I would have tried to, to poke around a little bit more, but yeah, it's 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 interesting. 
Um, I mean, I could see why I wouldn't want to leave. Yeah, the the Rose Garden. Yeah, yeah, the Rose Garden where the plaque is is apparently where his suite used to be, and that's why people say that they've seen him out in the Rose Garden. But other people say that. I mean, I don't think you probably would have gotten into right. the presidential suite. <laughs> I don't think your work probably would have paid for that. Uh, I can't expense the you know four thousand dollar a night presidential uh, no. suite, but uh, but everybody says that it, it, it's that it it looks a lot like you know, Bugsy's mm-hmm. old suite. And so that's where he apparently yeah. hangs oh, out. Oh, yeah, I mean, so there's a reason. So again, it's they say, but still, they're, they're cool stories. And the stories have been around for a while. And I always think that, you know, if there was someplace he's going to haunt, I mean, it would be there, right? I mean, it would be the Flamingo. It wouldn't be, you know, Virginia Hills House, I don't think. So I think this was where it would be. Because, I mean, he could, he, this guy has an eternity to say, yep, I told you absolutely. so. absolutely. <laughs> You know, nope. <laughs> all you do is look around and go, yep, yep. I told you, I tried to tell you, no. <laughs> but you whacked me. I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, the, the conference we were at was at the Caesar. At the, yeah, Troy, there's a reason we stayed at the Flamingo and not at Caesars. Um, so I definitely <laughs> right. would not have gotten into <laughs> right. that presidential suite. No, uh, no. <laughs> man, well, that's all I have. So it's now time for our Ghost Riders segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This first email is from John. It's titled, uh, Love of the Paranormal in History. It said, I first heard about your podcast on Astonishing Legends, and once I checked out and started on season three, I've been hooked. As a founder of Virginia Paranormal Events, I constantly talk up your podcast and tell everyone that will listen that Murdered in Their Beds is my favorite and should be yours, too. Not only was it a great story about a time in American history, but the topic has many sub-stories, including serial killers and, to this day, paranormal happenings due to the tragic murders. We share a love of history and yeah. paranormal, and I warmly welcome you two to visit uh, the hotbed of American history and fast becoming a state known for its many paranormal happenings. No place does history like Virginia. Its stories await someone of the talent of Troy to bring them alive in written words and deserve a podcast season or two thanks guys you're the best so thank you for that john um how, yeah how do you feel about about virginia in that area troy i know you've done some stuff around there no it's yeah it's nice yeah 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 I, yeah i've done some but i mean most of mostly like you know dc i've done more washington dc than i've done of actually virginia right. i mean i've had some things that have going to float out in that area but never really focused on it specifically um, I did, I did actually, uh, co-write, uh, Weird Virginia when those books were, uh, being printed, when that whole series was being done of all the weird states, weird Illinois, weird Missouri and weird Virginia. I did co-write that one. So I did some writing about Virginia, but I do like it. Um, you know, my sister lives out there. One of my sisters lives out there. So, um, yeah, who knows? One of these days we may end up with, uh, a, uh, season in at least if nothing else, uh, I would think D.C. would be a great season to do sometime. Absolutely, yeah. This next one is from Julie. It's titled Ghost Tours in New Orleans. And so we've we've talked about this before, but I've had so many people, even mm-hmm. the other day, my, my buddy was down there, and so he reached out to me, so I reached out to you, because yeah. everybody yeah. wants to know, you know, in this place, what's the best place to go, or what's the best tour company? So uh, I just want to hit it. Haunted History Haunted Tours. Haunted History Tours. Haunted History Tours, that's the only one worth... I'm sure there's probably a couple others that are okay, but that's my favorite, and that's the one that I would recommend. Uh, they were really one of the first and are the and even managed to, like some of us have done, survive the pandemic to remain in business. And um, they, they'll always have my support. And that's who we, whenever we go down there, we always do stuff with them. Uh, they just, I think they have the best company. 
So there you go. Awesome. Yeah. And to sum up Julie's note, she basically said, I recently moved to the area from La Crosse, Wisconsin. So I get a lot of visitors wanting to experience New Orleans, wanting to give them the best experience I can. Thanks for any advice. Thanks again. Keep up the great work. So there you go, Julie. I hope that that helps you out. This last one is from Curtis and it's titled Colorado Springs said I heard your podcast about the Velisca axe murders and when you mentioned Colorado Springs my ears perked up you mentioned one of the people from Colorado Springs murders was in the St. Francis tuberculosis tuberculosis hospital I used to work at that hospital and it's now abandoned Mm. but man that place was creepy I heard and saw things there that weren't that weren't (laughs) malicious but man in the dark you see and hear things and your hair stands on its (laughs) end yeah I would see things uh, walk into closed elevators I'd hear whistling in closets with no exits except the entrance door there are rooms Rumors of tuberculosis patients buried in a rock wall. By the way, you two rock love the podcast. I listen at work and it gets me through the night. Uh, I don't know. I don't think listening to our podcast would help. Yeah, that'd be a creepy spot. I mean, you think, no, I don't either. But I think how many people probably die in that place, man. So I'm not really surprised that it would be haunted. But yeah, that's crazy. So thank you for writing in. Again, that's American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. And over the break, we have a lot of new uh, patrons who have have subscribed and supported the show on patreon.com slash American Hauntings. So I just want to give a quick shout out to Norm, another Norm. Nathan, Jean, Victoria, Ashley, Chelsea, and Kendall. So thank you very much for supporting the show. It um, helps us keep doing what we're doing. And that's all I got. Yeah, sounds good, man. So, well, I'm glad we could do this. It's always a little weird. Uh, I prefer to be in the same room with you. Uh, I find that we <laughs> can, and we have, I think, a better conversation when we can see each other. But yes, um, it's, it's, um, but I'm glad we're taking we precautions. Anyway, I know, I know. Well, and that's, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to you know, go into a studio with you right now. Uh, just, yeah. you know, cause you're, you've well, got the, got the cooties, but well, you know. honestly, I'm supposed to get out of quarantine on Friday as long as they say it's okay, but I'm, I'm not going to a, a, a like diaper party thing on Saturday just cause I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. I yeah, want to give myself another day and yeah, I just, I just want to make sure, you know, you, you gotta do what you gotta do. And that's yeah. just the world we live yeah, in. Well, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. So, yeah. you know, dead of winter. So it'll be good. Which, Absolutely. Uh, you gonna? Do you want to wrap up your thing? Are you, I sure. know you tried. Yeah. It's weird to, to interrupt me over the Skype. I don't know how you like to do this. So yeah, whatever you got I don't. to say. Yeah, I just all all I really wanted to say was to thank everybody for listening, and uh, I I hope that you'll continue to share this with your friends uh, because it's it's a lot of fun for us to do, and uh, we enjoy doing it for you guys. And I, you know, I mean, I. I I think I said in the last when I was closing out the last episode, I mean, honestly, we wouldn't we wouldn't do this if it wasn't for our listeners. I mean, it's fun, but come on. You know, I mean, we we really like doing this stuff for you guys. So, I mean, if you're a regular listener, um, please take just a minute. Review us on the Apple podcast app, even if you don't listen on there because no one else lets you review stuff. So. Um, but leave us a review, um, you know, pass it along to your friends and your neighbors, your relatives, people you see on the bus. We don't care, you know, just anybody. So, you know, anybody that you can, uh, pass it on. We appreciate it. So anyway, um, that's it for me. So, uh, you go ahead and close it up. Actually, I think we should just close it up the way I did in the last episode. So 
I just said, you really you, you really did like you really did like that. But you know you know how much I just I love telling people that this episode of the American oh, Hunks podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. And there will probably be a lot of production on this one. The show airs every other week, offering history, hauntings, folklore, legends, and the truth as we look into America's darkest corners. Check out the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to more from American Hauntings. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more. And our main website God, is AmericanHauntings.net. So and if you want even more from us, you could be a supporter of the podcast on Yeah, Patreon. you know what? You hey, you know what? I had a show. good – I got tired of all oh the emails oh that boy. I got from people. When When's there going to be a new show? When you know? When are you coming back? Okay, for, for one, guys, it's free. So we'll get back when we get back. <laughs> I didn't want to say that to anyone, but I guess I'm saying it now. But you are. I did say to somebody, hey, if you were a Patreon supporter, you'd have a new show because – we put out bonus episodes on there. So there you go. Um, so you should have signed up. Yes. Yeah, so that too that mean? Out. No, I like, <laughs> no, I like it. It's, it's very on brand. Troy. I mean, there, well, there uh, are perks. You get other perks, you know, yeah, you get t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail and more. And thanks to our supporters. We've upgraded our equipment for the show. And with continued help yeah. from you, we can go back and listen to season one. Just go back creating. and listen to season one. And then you go, holy crap, this is awful. And then you listen to the new ones. Maybe not this one, but listen to the new ones and you can see how much better it is. Yeah, poor so we didn't get to use to our new them. equipment today because we're just talking on Skype. Um, yeah. so, but normally things sound better. So Yeah, but take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, and a Telegrams, which are well, apparently still a thing. Yeah, we found apparently out on still Twitter. a thing. We found out from Diana that there, first she said Western Union closed up shop in, what was it, 2006? And yeah, then, we felt like big dummies. <laughs> yeah, but then, like, people who have Telegrams, like, jumped in on our conversation, like, International Telegram or something. Yeah, it was And amazing. they said, oh, no, we still do Telegrams. And I'm thinking... Well, I know, you know, candy grams and stuff like that's probably still a thing, but who would have thought telegrams would be? Because, I mean, what do we I need know. them for? We have text messages, but apparently they're still in business. So yep. we're sorry. <laughs> we apologize. <laughs> um, use a telegram. I would love, you know what? I would love to get a telegram. That I would really be amazing. Would. It would be awesome. It would be just like, you know, not only would it be like the old West, but then it would be like the 1940s. You know, somebody comes to the door and, and you know, and, uh, you know, they knock and, uh, hey, Mac, I've got a telegram right. for you. You know, it's like, wow. So anyway, sorry. Uh, yes, I'm I off on a tangent that. there. So No, it's all good. And to her credit, too, she took it like a champ and she was like, I yeah. didn't know that. That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you it for the amazing. new information. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll look forward to those telegrams. And until next time, <laughs> goodbye. goodbye. So long. See you later. See you later. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> You know, if we'd have been in fun. person... <laughs>